0: Welcome to this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the Paper and Packaging Podcast. I'm Greg Johnson with Sustana Fiber. And as always, I'm happy to be joined by my co host, Dr. Marta Pazos. So, Marta, it looks like we'll be going to science class today, thanks to our guest, Dr. Bill Peck, an advisory board member of the Clean O2 Carbon Capture Technologies. An expert in fluid mechanics with both PhD and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Alberta, Bill has successfully served as a project scientist at organizations including NASA, Agilent Technologies, and Connor Pacific Environmental.
1: He is an incredible wealth of knowledge and one of the people that i was uh, the that i was drawn towards almost instantly when i joined the regeneration board he is grounded he is a phenomenal scientist and he has such a passion for anything that has to do with the
0: environment bill it's great to see you we're grateful for your time today and thank you for visiting with us
2: Thank you very much, It's great, great to be here on the uh, pulp nonfiction podcast. <laughs> great to be with you and uh, Marta, and uh, and uh, having a chance to talk today.
1: What made it for you? What made you be a scientist? What made you be a scientist with credential?
2: Ah, well, it's a long story. I mean, how long? How far should I go back? <laughs> you can you can go as far as you want. Less than a, a stellar um, high school experience, you might say. And uh, actually, I worked in construction and, um, oh, just odd jobs for many, many years. I turned 25, or it was turning 25, and I decided that, you know, it's time to think about what to do in the future, right? And So I, I went back to school. And uh, luckily at the time, the unemployment insurance people had this thing where you could get retraining. So I thought, well, it'd be good to get in my high school. And that was a bit too hard. So I went back to middle school, actually, on my 25th birthday. And I went back to school. And that went pretty good. I got sort of high school equivalency and then went into uh, engineering. And I thought, well, I could maybe try that, right, and see how that goes. And it went well. And it was actually um, fueled by uh, my interest in motorcycles at the time. Because, you know, I was always interested in racing and motorcycle racing and stuff. And I'm reading all this stuff. And I could never really... I understand a lot of it, but I couldn't really get to the heart of the matter. Right, you can see this motorcycle passion that's kept with me for, for ever since then.
1: Right, I absolutely love that because a lot of people don't realize that science is is very much like that for a lot of us. Right, like it is that. Yeah. desire to be able to explain those things that you know that you need a strong foundation for and it's also yeah. a great a fascinating and, 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 and inspiring example of you don't have to start at 18 to make it into a successful True. scientist like you can you know
0: you start a little later in life i wanted i wanted to ask you this from for both a personal as well as as a professional standpoint, from a sustainability perspective, what do you do in your everyday life? Can you give us some examples of some things you do to help the environment?
2: Well, I sequester old motorcycles, so they're not on the the road. (laughs) So, you you know, one of the big reasons I got involved with Regenerate is my mother was a passionate um, uh, conservationist, I guess, and, and... outdoors person and she she was like you know we grew up in oil country and she was fighting the good fight in oil country in the 60s you can imagine what a lonely experience that was right and so that stayed with me all my life so it's sort of natural for me to sort of every part of uh, every part of uh every day is kind of a day of thinking of you know making sure that you know, we live in sort of a more symbiotic way with the uh, with the environment.
1: Do you think that having those big, impactful names is helping us with uh, the movement of the fund, which is raising more money, creating more investments, more worth investments?
2: Yeah, well, certainly the names certainly help. You know, um, it, it shows that you know people like that are are paying attention to what we're up to. The other thing is. About Wesley Clark, he's a really smart guy. I mean, you get on these uh, calls with him, and he he has so much experience, and and he's just—I think he's valedictorian at West Point or something like that. I mean, you just look at his, his history. I mean, it's amazing, amazing accomplishment. Um, and so just just his raw intellectual horsepower is fantastic. Just to listen to you know when he, when he and uh, Tom talk, um, you learn so much. Just, humbling guy uh but it certainly does help have uh, it helps immeasurably to have him someone who you you know you you know actually working with the defense department in a couple areas with DARPA and stuff you realize how much depth there is and how much intellectual horsepower they have um not just on weapons but all, all sorts of things i mean they can they they look at um at sort of at national defense in a much broader spectrum, right? There's a, there's a much larger aperture on natural, uh, national defense. It's, you know, sure, everything from food security to population migration and, and, you know, keeping things secure. So, you know, having somebody like Wesley Clark, he brings all those dimensions to the table and, you know, lets us think, you know, uh, helps us think about things in a, in a much broader uh, broader perspective. Like I think we're, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, there, there's sort of uh, a lot of things that people do that sort of are, are you know, nice and it's a, it's good and well-intentioned, but can it have the impact that, that we really need to have to really be something on the climate? And, you know, Wes Clark, for example, gives you a pretty good reality check when you start talking about things like that. So it's a fantastic resource to have them have them on board
1: that incredible depth and in, in, in breadth right of yeah. knowledge and experience i you know i myself find it, it's fascinating because of the work i do for the department of defense right and i absolutely right. love to have that sounding board of like well this is what i need to do i've i've picked up a few uh, cues here and there to then apply to do a better job for the Department yeah. of Defense. So I'm, I'm actually personally very, very happy. Unfortunately, we don't get to see Leonardo DiCaprio, but we we get to see a couple yeah. of his delegates from time to time.
0: Bill, I, I know you're aware that Sustana Fiber um, produces recycled fiber that's used for a lot of sustainable food and beverage packaging. And obviously a, a lot of brands are starting to embrace fiber-based packaging more and more rather than plastics, especially in terms of single-use applications, do you see this promising paper trend continuing from a scientific standpoint? Oh, I
2: hope so. <laughs> no, I really do. I really do. Um, I think about it every day when we we have to sort through our recycling and different plastics and different this and that. I mean, it has to be recycling. You know, right now maybe isn't uh, an optimum solution, but uh, it has to be made easier. You know, that's. You know, so it, this whole cradle to cradle thing, um, you know, and I, I think this fiber uh, based stuff maybe plays a key role in that, where we can have more commonality and, and, and more, um, an easier way to recycle them, right? An easier and, and, and uh, uh, let's say, uh, less destructive, less uh, cost, a more cost effective way to recycle uh, materials.
0: Sure. No, ex- exactly. Mar- Marta and I have, we, we could, we've had so many conversations about this and I, I guess, you know, I feel like sometimes people get the impression that, that, um, there are some people who really are concerned about the environment who are anti-plastic, and we certainly aren't because we realize that we live in a society where we have to have plastic in some way, shape, or form, right. yeah. um, as you've yep. always pointed out, Marta. Um, I, I don't think we have to be diametrically opposed, um, but but certainly in terms of single use, um, it's, it's kind of frightening how much plastic in this country is landfilled um
2: Certainly, yeah. 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 I it, it, it mean, it's just—it just seems so logical to go this path, you know. I mean, thermoplastics—fantastic. I, mean, I mean, you think of all the things it's enabled from medical devices. You know, it's just amazing, right? But just just to use it for wrapping food or whatever, or for a, a, a drinking straw, it just seems such a waste and such a valuable product, right? And it, you know,
1: managed. We have managed to make it so cheap. Right, like such a, we created a material that is pretty much indestructible, and then we use it for something that we we only uh, can use one time. So guess what? You're gonna have indestructible trash. clean two is a very interesting example of a very clever uh, man, right? Who was working in plumbing for his entire life and thought of well let's just use let's just put my good plumbing engineering to a really good use, which is I am going to capture c o two emissions and make them into chemicals that can be used in so many different industries right not not that there is anything wrong with soap and and um and food additives, but there is so many more applications that will drive uh, the volume, right? That Technologies like this really need to, to uh, of course, get to um, the presence. What did you think about it from the get go? Because I believe that you were more involved at the beginning. I was, I was brought in when I needed to check on the, on the uh, soap, uh, in the, the soap formulations, but uh, you were involved from the beginning. Tell, tell me your experience with it.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the first was shock and surprise that that they were going to invest in a company in Calgary, because I was born and raised in a little town ninety miles north of Calgary. right? <laughs> it seemed a rather a suspicious coincidence, and in that there was a company that was capturing CO two, which in is basically. Like, Calgary is kind of like Houston North, right? It's like oil country, right? Um, and so my first thought was, well, that is encouraging because I couldn't imagine a company like that being spawned in Calgary when I was growing up, right? Like, it was just purely, you know, oil drilling and oil services and all that kind of thing, pipelines, gas pipelines. So that was great. And then, then I got in touch with Jason, and I was just amazed that this guy had just, you know, had that much motivation and that much passion to develop this product, right? So he he saw this problem and he kind of had this solution and he kind of just bootstrapped it, just classic Silicon Valley style, you know, in his garage, right? He just came up with this device with a couple of friends and um, he's never done a startup. He's never done I don't think he's ever raised money before or anything like that. And he just got some government grants and this and that and you know his own cash and sort of made a few gizmos and it kind of worked, right? And uh, it's actually a very compelling product. And what was so cool was that you had this guy with this idea and he got in touch with, uh, he hooked up with Dan and, and um, Michael at Regenerate who are so good at branding and marketing. And it was just the right mix, right? To have this guy who was more of a technical guy and then you get the branding and marketing people working with him to help him along. And suddenly he's the dog that caught the bus, right? And I think that was where I kind of came in was, okay, it's working now, Jason. Let's, how do we take it? You know, how do we open the aperture on your, on your vision and make it, you know, affect a lot of people's lives,
0: right? That's that's an amazing story, um, for someone who was a plumber, um, yeah. and then capturing carbon and turning it into things like soap. I, I mean, that's it yeah. sounds like Ben Franklin, a Ben Franklin story of of sorts. Uh,
2: yeah, it, it's 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 just the, the the best parts of entrepreneurship, right? And it's fantastic to see him get have such success. So you know, right now what he's facing, of course, is the technical issues of you know how do you start making thousands of these things, right? Like they've been they've been making them in their in their shop in uh, East Calgary right now, and like how do you start making a whole bunch of these and all the different you know you want to fill them to Europe or yeah. scaling
0: scale up. scaling up, right? Well, and ta- talking about scaling up, I, I my next question for you, Bill, I know you you w- used to work at NASA and what's your take on all these private space companies that are scaling up like SpaceX and Blue Origin? Um, You know, they're talking about building space hotels, doing intergalactic mining Um, from an environmental standpoint, um, particularly looking at this through the science lens. um, Is this long-term going to be okay for our environment? Is it, um, potentially dangerous. I know there's lots of stuff floating around in space, like old satellites and uh, rocket parts. Duck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, space. Well, waste.
2: I think burns up pretty quickly, but smaller stuff, right? But one thing um, that is relevant is when I was there. I remember going to the cafeteria one day, and uh, it was safety week, and it was sort of like you know, you remember the old show, Mash? You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Used to have the. Radar would come on over the intercom, right? It was, oh, yeah. you know, it was like the government cafeteria, and, and sort of this, this intercom came on, and they said, "Today for Safety Week, we're going to be giving an award for the best chili." Uh, and the, the uh, we have a special guest giving the safety award, and it'll be Jim Lovell from the Apollo 13. Oh mission. my
1: wow. gosh!
2: Oh, Whoa! So I went outside, and there's like you know 150, 200 metal chairs, you know, in a you know, uh, stat, you know, set up. And I sat there about 10 feet away from Jim Lovell as he gave a talk on his experience on Apollo 13 Whoa. and Apollo 8. That's oh, amazing. And I, strange. you know, I did remember Apollo 8, uh, Christmas Eve in 1968. And if you probably, you know, you might remember just what a, a terrible year or, you know, a, a dramatic year 1968 was. And then the three astronauts went around the moon. You know, I'm not a religious man myself, but I remember them reading from Genesis and, uh, just, you know, them looking back at the earth and uh, then the, the power of seeing earth rise over the moon, right? And how that really just uh, spawned the environmental movement. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying it's it's amazing for people to go into space, I think, and look back at what the precious part we have of the universe, you know? Um, and And for that alone, I think it's incredibly valuable. Now... There's all this other uh, added value that you get from cheap access to space um, where you, you can put in monitoring systems and satellites and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the work we need to do in the climate is based on, you know, satellites going around the earth, right? we need probably more of these satellites to get, you know, give us better and better measurements all the time of what's going on. Now, as far as the stuff about space tourism and stuff like that, you know, well, I think, I, I, I don't know the numbers on it, but, you know, obviously it, it needs to be <laughs> sort of closely watched because I know it takes a hell of a lot of uh, propellant to launch somebody into space. And is it really worth it? But certainly that Apollo 8 mission was worth it. <laughs> and, you know, because uh, it really did change so much. And I think anything we can do to get people to look back on where we are and, and have a more sensitive look at what, what, uh, what a treasure we have floating in space is well worth it. So, you know, there's the, 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 just the practical, uh, cheap access to space where you can get communications and, and monitoring set up uh, cheaply. And then sort of the emotional part and then just sort of a, um, the idea of having a look at, at um, you know, getting people more sensitive to what we really have.
0: And and Bill, just a follow-up question is: when you talk about rocket propulsion, when the rockets take off, all the thrust and everything, from a from a pollution standpoint, um, is that a big deal? Is is a lot of this uh, dissipated in the atmosphere? Um, well, it
2: all gets dispersed in the atmosphere, of course, all the propellants and stuff. Sure, but, uh, <laughs> There's quite a bit. I think we should really think, twi- you know, carefully about. Um, about uh, sending too many people up there, but at the same time, you see what they did with the James Webb Telescope. You know, we're we're looking to the edges of the universe now, right? It's just we wouldn't want to curtail stuff like that. To, Certainly, to, for space tourism, right? Yeah, I think we might have to sit down and really budget our uh, what we do to send into space.
1: I can tell you that uh, generally, the the pro- Pellants used have not been studied to the extent of something like a CO two or methane, right? So uh, it's kind of like a cop out, right? What we don't what we don't know, we we don't see, we just don't count, and that is kind of like what's happening right now. However, though, there is always, and this is uh, this is something that I um, I always keep thinking about, which is the amount of propellant that is going to come out of one rocket that is launched very seldom, right, is never going to be as much as our regular emissions just from burning fossil fuel, right? So that is like the one thing that we always um, uh, have to uh, to keep in mind, right? Like we, we are always so... Um, Surprise when we hear, well, this mission to Mars costs millions and millions of dollars, but we may spend more uh, money on clothing in the US alone. Not See, it's not true.
2: Like- oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's a matter of scale, isn't it, yeah, right? I mean, exactly, exactly. So yeah. you always have to you know, consider what is the benefit versus the damage that you're causing, right? And certainly, yes, propelling a rocket to the outer space is polluting, but it's never going to be as polluting as one month of manufacturing in a certain region in China. I can tell you that.
0: That's a good
2: point, Marta. no. So- no comparison, yeah. No
1: comparison. And just yeah. to put an example, I'm thinking of China because that's where most of the manufacturing is. I'm not picking on China, by yeah. the way.
0: Yeah. Well, well, talking about absolutes, we we all know, um, unless we've lived in a cave, that uh, food and fuel prices have been on a escalating um, inflationary rate. Um, and. We've also seen, though, in a positive sense, though, that both the fuel and food sectors, though, have been leading the way in a lot of positive sustainability actions, including regenerative agriculture and exploring solar and wind power as electric alternatives. But, Bill, I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of sustainability, um, with these inflationary times that we're in now— do you see that that some of these positives uh developments that we've had over the last couple of years diminishing? Um, where, where people say, hey, you know, I'm just trying to put food on the table. Carbon capture's great, but you know, I'm paying six dollars a gallon for gas. I don't really care about biofuel now. What are your thoughts on on when people say or think things like that?
2: Well, you know, the the short term and long term, right? So, I mean, short term, I mean, I think the the fuel situation will um, resolve itself pretty soon. I think a lot of the prices priced into the refining part of it and not so much the raw. So it's just, you you know, what I've learned from the oil business was that anytime there's a disruption, things just go nuts. And, you know, a lot of fingers get pointed, but it's just a matter of who's got capacity and then, you don't have capacity refining, and, you know. So this thing in Ukraine going on and whatever, uh, it's causing a disruption in the supply chains. And I, I think they'll, they'll sort it out, and the prices will come down again. But uh, I'm hoping that it accelerates our our, um, our acceptance of alternative fuel supply, right? Like you know, uh, renewables like solar and and um, and wind power, and uh, you know biofuels i'm not sure that's going to make a big difference but certainly the renewables hopefully that what we're seeing now is the instability um of our supply chain will accelerate us into getting a more stable accelerate us towards getting a more stable um energy supply so you know I, i'm hoping that we get a, a more serious uh engagement with uh, nuclear in in the near future right i think that that could take up a huge part of the of um, the deficit in in energy right now. Talking
0: about nuclear, Bill, you know, we're all pretty familiar, uh, those of us of a certain age, about Three Mile Island and certainly younger people with Chernobyl. From a science, just strictly from a science standpoint now, when you talk about nuclear, is it safer now than it was um, back in the Three Mile Island days?
2: Actually, that's a good question for Wes Clark. He's actually a nuclear engineer, I think, or he did nuclear, but, but uh, I, I believe it is much, much different now. Um, I, 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 I'm not a nuclear engineer. There's my humility coming through. But uh, from what I understand, they've had like, you know, 50 years or 40 years of uh, development um, on on uh, nuclear power. And so, yeah, I, um, I, I think we've learned a lot from Fukushima and whatever on. Um, on what, how to how to do it more safely?
1: Yeah, and maybe to not locate it next to a possibility of being hit by a tsunami. You know, it's, well,
2: well, there's that.
1: <laughs> there's there is that. that too. Location, Which location, location. Yeah, I think that the Japanese truly, truly realized about um, that as well. And I mean Chernobyl. I think that that was an example of obsolescence. Right. Like they were not as modernized and, and safe as they could have been.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, they're both built in what, the 60s, right? Early 60s, I think. So, so older, yeah. older
0: generation plants that uh, are yeah. a little bit antiquated. Like first
2: gen. First gen. I think they're first gen. Yeah, both of them.
1: Yeah, I think that you know it, it's it's int- very interesting that everybody I speak to about energy is a proponent of nuclear why aren't we there is still the question right
0: yeah it's because, okay yeah, yeah. it's almost like there's yeah. a stigma to it um i I yes. remember my parents um my mom was was really for it and then my dad was like no, oh, it's too dangerous you know um but i I think we have to look at all our alternatives um if we want to
2: more dangerous than carbon right now, or you know, right. like greenhouse gases. Right? right. I mean, look at the damage that's yeah. happening every year. Right. Yeah. Particulates yeah, but, and so, yeah,
1: sure. but we humans, we never look long term, right? And <laughs> what you're what you're saying, I remember we had a guest that she said that sustainability should be cost efficient, which is true. When you actually do things at the beginning, we know that the economy of the scale is not there yet, but In the long run, I mean, I think anybody would agree that if we get the system down to get uh, materials out of agricultural waste, to put an example, um, it's going to be less costly than digging to get oil out of the ground. I mean, it has to be, especially that particular process, which is nasty, incredibly energy consuming, and we have become incredibly dependent on it. So now that the economy of the scale for fuel uh, refinery is there, it seems that we don't know how to apply that to another
0: resource. Bill, as as we wrap up our discussion today, it's been a real pleasure just hearing your perspective on a number of environmental issues. And I, I wanted to just quickly ask you uh, this. I, I read a book a long time ago, a marketing book, and it talked about um, the fact that people buy on emotion and justify their purchases uh, with reason. And I remember that phrase. It just kind of stuck in my brain because it seems to encapsulate the science of sustainability as well as the emotion of people really caring for the environment. And I, I'm i hopeful that, that that type of mindset continues do you do you see that, despite uh, the day to day struggles that we all have, whether it's with our jobs or the economy or world events, do you feel that um, that mindset will will continue and people will um, be optimistic about trying to help the environment um, through science?
2: Well, I, I hope so. Yeah, I definitely do. And you know, and I, and I just go back. When you're saying that, it was, <laughs> I was just thinking again of Jim Lovell, his talk, right? And he was, he was, um, you know, to, to me that just that sort of uh, set my whole life in a certain direction, right? When I look back on, it, and I, that was uh, just hearing him on, on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve that time, you know, it, and then and hearing him later talk about his experience, you know, and he, he said he could put his thumb up and cover the whole Earth with his thumb, right, from the space capsule, and. You know, it was it was sort of the overwhelming um, uh, beauty of what he was seeing, and also I think he was thinking about the. You know, for me, he felt like he was expressing the possibility of what we have. Right, if people can get excited about the gift they've been given, um, I think a lot of stuff will just move out of the way pretty quickly. And when I see it now, with generate all the possibilities coming along, and certainly we have a very select group of. Um, investments we're looking at that are, you know, directed this way, but it's really, really exciting and and really gives me just no ends of optimism to see what's possible in the future of all these smart people working on this. I think if we can just build that excitement, I think a lot of the STEM problems will solve themselves. I think people will get excited about, um, you know, a really diverse set of people will get excited about what they can contribute to uh, creating a more sustainable environment.
1: Yeah, it always starts with excitement ease. <laughs> right. Yes. It's also that's also you very know, important.
2: <laughs> it really is. And you know that's one of the things that attracted me about Dan and Michael at, with Regenerate is is that they, they brought the marketing part to the to the um to the uh, problem. And it, it's so important, right, to 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 get <laughs> To, to articulate your, your message and your, your mission uh, clear, clearly in, a, in an accessible way.
0: Bill, you have articulated lots of science stuff for us today, and I, I, I know our audience appreciates it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a real treat.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Bill.
0: Well, it's been a great pleasure talking to you guys on Pulp Nonfiction Podcast. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us for this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. We look forward to seeing you next month, but in the meantime, if you would like more information, please be sure to visit SustanaFiber.com.
1: And don't forget to subscribe and please give us a good rating and a good review. We want to keep bringing this to you and that is the best way that you can help.